Heavenly Father, we seek you every Sunday. We seek you during this Christmas series, or, uh, service. May you just come and have your way among your people. Lord, may you come and just speak to our hearts. Change us from the inside out. May this not just be another Sunday, but may this be a time that we have met with our King and are different because of it. So come and have your way as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you're praying and you hear children screaming and then a door just slowly closed, you're like, I'm assuming everything's okay. But those seem like happy screams. So last week we started uh, a series on Advent. Uh, some of you may be super familiar with Advent personally. This is my first time really walking through uh, an Advent season. I, I didn't grow up in any church, but certainly not a liturgical church where there's kind of a church calendar that repeats each year. And so some of you, this may be kind of coming home, uh, looking at Advent. For some of us, this is new. And all it is is uh, there's four kind of ancient aspects of Christmas uh, that the church, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, typically comes back, revisits, and looks at, reminds ourselves of. And so last week we started, uh, the first week, Brian spoke, and it was on the theme of hope. The hope of the Christmas season, the hope that we have as followers of Jesus, because our King came near to us, the hope that we have available today. The second week of Advent, uh, I found out as I was kind of researching it, there's two different themes, uh, depending probably on what tradition you're from. A uh, pretty common one is peace. Um, and the other theme that people uh, focus on the second week of Advent is preparation. Uh, and we're going to look a lot at preparation this Sunday. Actually, about a month ago, I, I did a whole message on peace, and so I feel like I would just be recycling a lot of it. So we're going to touch on it a little bit. But I want this to be a week focused on preparation as we walk into the Christmas season. So in Israel, in the first century, in the time that Jesus came, Israel was in a time of preparation. Israel was in a time of, of waiting and expectation for their Messiah to come. They didn't know it at the time, but now as we look back on history, when Jesus came, it ended what is commonly known as 400 years of silence. There was 400 years in Israel's history, it's basically between the last writing of the Old Testament and where the Gospels start, where God just wasn't present much in Israel. God is always present everywhere, but where he wasn't making himself known much. There weren't new prophets coming, there weren't new books of the Bible being written. It was a silent time from God and so the people of Israel were kind of starting to get anxious for the Messiah to come. They kind of had this, it would have been the thinking of going, okay, we don't think he's left. Like we know that like he's still our God, but we also have no idea what he's up to. We haven't heard from him in a while. Israel, there was a, they had a pattern of disobedience and there's all kinds of reasons why. But there was a heightened time of expectation in Israel. They were waiting for their Messiah to come. In fact, something that was kind of regularly happening at the time was random people were going, I'm the Messiah, follow me. And they would get bands of followers, and they were typically freedom fighters who were fighting against Rome and whatever, and they were always defeated. But there was this, 
He said he's the Messiah. Maybe it's the one. Messiah would have been talked about in whispers because it was so precious to them. They were waiting for their Messiah to come. Again, during this time, I just mentioned there was the Roman occupation. First, Greece came and took over the known world, and then Rome took over even more after them, and Israel was subject to them. And it was, it was hard to be subject to Rome. And so again, it heightened this sense of anticipation, of waiting, of preparation, because they believed, now we know wrongly, that the Messiah would come and throw off the shackles of Rome, that he would be this military strategist in the way of David, this warrior king, who was going to defeat Rome, expel them from Israel, and put Israel back on like the, the map, so to speak. And so there was this heightened sense of anticipation and of preparation on Israel's side. And here's the good news. God was also in the preparation business. God wasn't just sitting on his hands for 400 years going, I hope they figure it out. God was working things out in human history and in Luke chapter 1, we start to see God put some of his plans into action. Most of the times when we look at the Christmas story, we start in Luke 1, but we start halfway into the chapter. We tend to start the Christmas story where the angel comes and speaks to Mary. But that's actually, it's halfway through. There's another story happening in Luke chapter 1 that is intertwined with the birth story of Jesus. Does anybody know what story is intertwined in Luke 1? The birth of John the Baptist. Most often, when we tell the Christmas story, we kind of skip John the Baptist. If you're ever paying attention when someone's reading through the Christmas story, they start in Luke 1, I think it's 26, and they go to about 50, and then they kind of skip to chapter 2, and there's these big passages that are skipped, and they're the story of John the Baptist's birth. But I think Luke put them together on purpose. He literally intertwined them. He tells the story of a little bit of John the Baptist's story, and then a little bit of Jesus, and then a little bit of John's, and then a little bit of Jesus, because he wants them intertwined. John had an important role to play in the preparation of Israel. So this morning, what I want to do is look at the story of John the Baptist's birth and God's purpose behind it. So John the Baptist's story starts with his parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. All that we know about them is that they were old, they were barren, they weren't able to have children, and that Zechariah was a priest. It says that they were godly people, they were faithful people, but they were old and they were barren, and Zechariah was a priest. And so starting in verse 8, when his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not fear, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. So let's just stop and like paint the scene a little bit. Zechariah, this priest of the Lord, he had probably many times gone and, and ministered before the Lord in this way. It was kind of like, it was a very sacred duty. And so that casting lots, essentially they had dice that they would roll and they would narrow it down to, okay, we think God wants you to go because your number was drawn. But only one person could go in and do this. And it was kind of like everyone else stood outside 
and waited. Everyone else stood outside and worshiped while that one person went in and lit incense. And so imagine you go in, you're the only person allowed in there. They went through the whole thing of casting lots to pick you. And all of a sudden you look up and there's someone else standing there. You'd be freaked out, right? Maybe questions like, what are you, do? you're not allowed to be here. What are you? But listen to what the angel says to him. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. That thing that you and your wife have been praying about probably for decades, the Lord has heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. John, in Hebrew, most Hebrew names actually meant something. They were like short statements. And John literally meant God is gracious. I am going to give you a son, Zechariah. I have heard your prayer, and I'm going to give you a son. And he is going to be a reminder to everyone he meets about the grace of God. You are to name him God is gracious. And the angel goes on, There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. I wanted to stop there real quick, because sometimes people read that and get a little confused. Okay, so the angel was saying alcohol is bad. No. Uh, what he was saying is he will be a Nazarite. There was this uh, ancient Israel way of devoting yourself to the Lord called a vow of a Nazarite, where essentially you would say, I will never cut my hair and I will never touch anything made from grapes. And it was this way of declaring to everyone you met, I am fully devoted to the Lord. And so we find later in descriptions of John that he was a really shaggy dude. He was an unkempt guy, had never cut his hair and never touched wine or beer or any of these fermented drinks because it was a sign of his devotion to the Lord. The angel is saying he's, he's going to be great in the sight of many and he will be fully devoted to the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. There's a cool little Easter egg in Jesus' story about that. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit of, and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. Listen, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Israel had been waiting for this time. They had been preparing for this time. But God said, they're kind of missing it. They, they've kept wandering. And he said, I'm going to give you a son named John because he is going to be an instrument of preparation. Preparing the world, preparing my people Israel for what I'm about to do. There was a need for preparation. Without preparation, the people would miss what God was going to do. And in fact, many of them did miss what God was going to do. Zechariah, again, kind of freaked out by this, understandably so. He tells the angel, how can I know this? Now, that how can I know this, Israel has a track record when you read through the scripture of looking at God and going, prove it. The, Jesus, how many times did they go, what sign are you going to give that you're the Messiah? He had like just healed somebody and they went, oh yeah, prove it. Zechariah kind of looks at the angel and says, prove it. How can I know that what you're saying is true? For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Real quick, that's, a, that's Gabriel kind of flexing on Zechariah a little bit. Oh, Oh, you want to question me? 
Let me tell you about my day job. <laughs> I stand at the right hand of God. Okay, so Zechariah probably at this point is going, maybe I shouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> maybe that wasn't a good thing to say. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary, for he kept making signs to them, and he remained speechless. Quick little story. Uh, Jesus at one point says, hey, don't test God. Zechariah would probably say the same thing. If God makes you a promise, just be glad. It's good news. Listen, there's nothing wrong with, with a heart that says, oh God, I, I want this to be true. Like, is this really you? But this, oh yeah, prove it. It doesn't go well for Zechariah. So he comes out, the people have been waiting, and he's kind of in there longer than usual, and they're like, uh-oh. Some things that would happen is if a priest would go in and he would be unclean or he would do something in the presence of the Lord that he wasn't supposed to do, sometimes they then had a problem with dead priests on their hands because God took this ministry very seriously. And so I'm sure there was people out there going, uh-oh, are we going to have to go on like a rescue mission and pull this guy out? He's been in there a long time. What are we supposed to do? So he finally comes out and you can kind of imagine the people are like, oh, oh good, he's here. And he's just flailing. He didn't know sign language. He could like, so he's just flailing. And they're like trying to piece it together. And somebody in the crowd, oh, he must have seen a vision. And now he can't talk because of it. They, they took it really well. I would have been like, I have so many questions. What is happening? But he kept making signs to them. And he remained speechless. So we know that for at least a year, Zechariah could not speak from that point. Could have been longer, we don't know, but a baby tends to take about 10 months to bake. And he still had some work to do in Jerusalem before he went home. So at least a year, maybe longer, Zechariah was unable to speak. But this was a sign that the Lord was at work. Everyone who met Zechariah would have heard that story. He has seen this crazy vision. We, honestly, he's been trying to draw it, and we're not good at Pictionary, so we're not sure exactly what happened, but we know that he's been in the presence of God, and everyone would kind of be waiting to see what would happen, waiting to see what God was about to do. And we know the story of John has this kind of massive historical scope to it. He's a part of ushering in King Jesus and so it has this world-changing, history-changing scope to it. And sometimes we can forget that it also has a very personal side to it. Remember, when the angel came to Zechariah, he said, I have heard, or excuse me, he says, the Lord has heard your prayer. And he will give you a son. That thing that you have been longing for most of your life, your God sees you and he has answered and so it goes in, these next couple of verses are, are some of my favorite in the whole story. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Sometimes we think that stories have to either be big, world-changing, or very personal, and that we kind of keep them in two separate things. Thank God we have a God who doesn't have to play that way. 
And he went, I have heard the cry of these people. And not only am I going to change the world through this, but I'm going to let them know that I see them. Elizabeth, my God, he has done this for me. He has looked with favor on me. He has removed disgrace. To be barren, people would have assumed you were so sinful, God has cursed you. You have done something so wrong that God has closed your womb would have been the, the typical sight. It was a disgraceful thing. Every time she would have been around other women or other families, she would have been looked down on. She would have probably kept to the back and kept her mouth closed, just kind of don't make a scene because if they know you, they're going to start talking about you. This was the, the customary way to view it at the time. And she says, but my God has seen me. And even in my old age, he has delivered me from disgrace. The tenderness of the king. God was not just so busy going, I got this world changing stuff to do. I can't care about each individual person. He said, I got this world changing stuff to do and I love them so much. I have heard their prayers. I have seen their devotion. I want to be tender toward them. So this is one of those big jumps because now it goes into the story of Mary and Gabriel, which we'll look at in the coming weeks. But skipping ahead to verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. It was very customary. Everyone was named after somebody who went before them. Nowadays, we just, in America, we go, hey, what name do we like? And if somebody names somebody after like their great-grandpa, it's like, oh, that's nice. This was like the way business was done back then. You were always named after someone in your line. And remember, Zechariah can't speak, and so they're like, let's just go with Zechariah. It's a safe bet. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, I love that they put it in all caps in the Bible because you can kind of think Zechariah is like, don't do it. He said, John, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them. This is not that fear of like, oh no, God's mad. What are we going to do? This was fear of like, something way bigger than us just happened. Something God-sized is taking place and there's this incredibly healthy kind of fear and trembling that happens. We are in the presence of a miracle of God. And so fear came on all those who lived around him. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, what then will this child become? Just imagine the intrigue. If this is the beginning of his story, what plans must God have for this child? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Listen, these are some of the first words a man who hasn't spoke for at least a year. These are some of the first words that he gets to speak. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, 
salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches, to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And then I love it. He speaks directly to John, his son. He says, and child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadows of death to guide our feet into the ways of peace. The language that he used, you will find all throughout the Old Testament. He was calling up all kinds of, of imagery of the dawn coming and light in darkness that Israel would have understood to mean our Messiah is coming. That time is at hand. But he says, you, child, will be called a prophet because you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Son, our people need to prepare or they're going to miss it. And God is going to use you to help prepare them. Now, again, Israel had been preparing. I'm putting quotes around it because we know most of them missed it. So I'm not suggesting everything they did was wrong, but they also weren't getting it completely right either. How did Israel, how did the people of Israel prepare for the coming of the Messiah? They had been doing it for hundreds and thousands of years because they didn't know when it was happening. But they had been told by God a number of ways to prepare, to be ready for his coming. How did the people of Israel prepare for the coming of the Messiah? What do you think? Okay. Okay. So there, there was a, a whole bunch of, of festivals and rituals and traditions that they had. How, how did the people of Israel prepare for the coming of the Messiah? What were they doing up until this point? Yeah, there was this very strict adherence to the law. Like they were at the spot, especially kind of the, the more pressure Rome put on them, the more religious they became. We have to keep the law even harder. But a big part of the law that they would keep, it wasn't just, hey, do these things and don't do these things. A big part of the law was also a lot of these traditions that they had at set times and these festivals that they would have throughout the year. They were, they were always about, listen, looking back. When you read through the Old Testament and so many things that God had called the people of Israel to, so much of it was, look back, remember what I've done. And so I'm going to institute things that force you to keep looking back. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is how God said the people of Israel were to live with their families and their neighbors. 
He, he talks about these, these, these great things that he had done, deliverance from Egypt, all of this. And he says, teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. There was this thing of keep reminding each other of all the things that God has done. Don't forget the ways that God has been merciful to us, the promises of God. There was a constant call to look back. So these festivals that they would have, there was seven a year. These are the major ones. There was actually more than this, but seven a year where it was like, get on your donkey, get to Jerusalem. So it's like once every six or seven weeks. It's festival time. And most of these were a week long and you didn't work during the festival. I mean, so these were like big deals, but every one of the festivals was a reminder, look back at this thing that God has done. When God delivered us from Egypt, when God parted the sea, when God gave us the law, there was this constant reminder to look back. Most of their religion was looking back to what God had done. Don't forget, don't let your children forget. Pass it on to the next generation. Look back. Why, why was looking back or, or remembering so important to them? Why was it so important to remember the things that God had done even hundreds of years beforehand? Okay. How would it boost their faith? I completely agree. Mm -hmm. If he did it then, imagine what he could do now. Okay? There's not, there's not a whole lot of new stuff, so, okay. Yeah. It was foundational to who they were as a people. Like, we are the people of God. Who is God? Well, he's the God who delivered us from Egypt. He's the God who led us in the wilderness. He's the God who gave us the... It, it was, like, built into their DNA. And God had said... Like, all these festivals that we talked about were God-ordained. Like, God told them, have a festival at this time so that you don't forget what I've done here. Looking back was meant to give them faith and courage to move forward. Remembering his faithfulness then, listen, we talked about hope last week, builds our hope for his faithfulness now. Like David said, you were meant to look back and go, okay, how must it have felt to be an Israelite trapped between Egypt and the sea? It would be terrifying. It would be dark. People would be freaking out. But God made a way that seemed impossible. How bad could my circumstances now really be? If he's the same God who did that, then he can probably be the same God who works today. This, this constant reminding them to look back was a way of preparing their hearts for what he was about to do. If he was strong then, he is still strong today. Do you have a thought?
Right. Right. Yeah. And they, and they, like he said, they would have specific places that they would even go. Let's go to the Jordan. Why? It's not like the water in the Jordan is special, but it was to remind them this is the place where God literally stopped the flow of a river so that we could cross over. Incredible, miraculous. Hey, see that stack of rocks over there? It's called an Ebenezer. That's there to remind us, as, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that's there to remind us, look at what God has done. And we can tell our children, because like I said, they're going to walk up and go, hey, Dad, what's that pile of rocks for? Well, son, that's to remind us that this is the place where God did this miraculous thing. Imagine that son's faith going, whoa, our God did that? Imagine the dad as he retells the story and his faith is being built. He's probably going to start, we all do this. We think about our current situations and go, if he was able to then, maybe there is hope for today. And we find strength and we find courage. This preparation piece of looking back has always been huge. God had always called his people to do it because he knew that they would find strength to carry on. And so th this is the, the place that Israel was in. They were really good at telling the stories. They, they had perfected the festivals. Again, seven a year for thousands of years, you're going to know how to put on a good festival. They were constantly looking back, and it was meant to build their hope as they waited with anticipation for what God would do. So that's Old Testament Israel. Don't overthink this. It's not a very difficult question. How does this apply to the Christmas season today? Israel is one thing. Now let's talk about us. Yeah, looking back to look forward. We look back to when Jesus was born. Listen, this is, some of these are going to be some no-brainers. It's okay. Why is it so important when Jesus was born? Let's not assume anything. Let's talk about it. One of my favorite names for God is Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, it's applied to Jesus. God with us. That's when God came near. How does remembering that God came near 2,000 years ago, how does that actually help us today? How does that prepare us today? I, I, I wish I would have looked this up. I don't remember. But there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus' birth. And so if God kept his word then, I can probably bet that he's going to keep his word now. Even though, again, how many hundreds of years between those prophecies and Jesus showing up, there was a lot of, I hope he does, I think he's going to. When Jesus shows up, those prophecies are fulfilled and faith is built. Now we get to look back. We have, we have it all bound up for us in a Bible. And we get to go, wow, he said it here and a thousand years later he did it. He never forgot it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. Uh-oh, did he forget? Nope. It took longer than we would have liked before, but he always came through. He's going to come through today. Okay, how else? I saw somebody pointing at someone else, so, yeah. Yeah. 
no one is going to look back and be able to say the world didn't change at this point. Whether they like it or not, whether they agree with how we, th like, history changed from this point on, and we serve the God who changed history forever at that point. Men, you ever have that feeling where you, the Holy Spirit sounds a lot like your wife? That was for me. She knew it, I think. But every year I'm like, Christmas again? We just did this. But it's true. There is always something new that comes. My faith is always built by remembering that on that day the king came near. There's new facets of it. There's, there's new situations that I'm in that I need to remember the king has come near. And Christmas is that thing on the calendar. I, I actually, I love that we do Christmas once a year. I can struggle with the 18 weeks of Christmas that we have leading up to it. But I love that every year, when done right, it forces us to stop and go, he didn't stay distant then. And he's not staying distant now. He came near then. And he will come near now. In fact, we believe he is near now. I think one of the main purposes of the Christmas season is that it brings peace. Again, remember the second week of Advent is often focused on peace. Peace comes from remembering his faithfulness then and expecting his faithfulness to continue now. We don't need peace once we're on the other side of the hard situation because everything's easy. We need peace when we're in the middle of it and the question is, is God going to provide to show up to work in my favor, to whatever it may be. And it's at those times that I need to look back and remember he was faithful then, and he'll be faithful now. And by doing so, peace is able to rest on me. We've looked at this passage a lot in the last couple of weeks, so I'm just going to touch on it very quickly. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 talks about the peace of God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't think it's an accident that thanksgiving is in there as a part of that formula, if you will. Pray, talk to God, draw near to him, petition him, but also give thanks. Part of giving thanks is you have to look backwards, even if it's just to yesterday. God, thank you for what you have given me. Thank you for what you have done. 
peace comes by remembering his faithfulness then and learning to expect it now. Peace comes by remembering that God came near then, and we believe through his Holy Spirit, God is still near now. He is still Emmanuel, God with us, the king who comes for his people, who doesn't wait for his people to get it all figured out and then come knock on his door, but the king who comes and meets us in the middle of the pit we find ourselves in. That's who he was 2,000 years ago, and that's still who he is today. This looking back to what God has done at Christmas time is meant to empower us to walk into our God-given destinies today. It inspires peace and hope and courage for today, but also for tomorrow. Because listen, we have some things in common with first century Israel. Israel was in a time of waiting and expectation, and we as the people of God today are in a time of waiting and expectation. Israel was waiting and expecting their Messiah to come. We are waiting and expecting our Messiah to come back. Christmas has always been meant to remind us that our King is coming again. There's this, there's this looking back, he came and we tell the cute story of the baby in the manger and sometimes it becomes weirdly like, aw, he's so cute. He came in weakness as a servant, as a sacrifice then, but that is meant to remind us that he's coming again as king, king of kings. He's, he's not coming again in some meek, mild way, but when he comes back, all of eternity will be different. And we are meant to wait to expect this. I, I shared with Kim a couple weeks ago, reading through the New Testament, like I'm constantly convicted, the way that they were waiting for the return of Jesus is not the way that I wait for the return of Jesus. They were like, could it be today? And, and they were going through such hardship and everything, they were like, God, I hope and pray it's today. And I'm like, yeah, eh, might happen. I'm, kind of, I'm pretty comfortable now, so if he waits a while, like, I'm fine. But they had this sense of expectation. We desire it. We long for it. And actually, we're on mission to try to bring him back. Let's make sure every tribe, nation, tongue has heard the good news because we want the king to come back. We are meant to wait with the same expectation first century Israel was. And as we look back to the story of his first coming, it should spark something in us to go in one day, hopefully soon, he's coming back again. But there's this preparation that has to take place. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the time when he will come back again. Matthew 23, 24, 25, like that section is some of the most prolific, uh, we call it end times passages, when Jesus talked about his second coming. And he tells a couple parables in there. I, I want to look real quick at the, the parable of the ten virgins. The, essentially, Jesus says, okay, it's kind of like there's this wedding feast that's about to happen. And these 10 young ladies have been invited to come to the feast, but they're waiting outside of the city for the groom to come. And when the groom comes, they're going to get up and they're going to kind of walk in with him in this big processional. And so all 10 show up outside of the city and it takes a little longer than they thought. And all of a sudden, like, it's dark. The groom still hasn't come yet, but don't worry, they all brought lamps. 
Some of them weren't very prepared. They were kind of laissez-faire, like, yeah, he'll probably be coming soon. I'm not going to worry about it. And so they didn't bring extra oil. They didn't bring extra wicks. Like, they just kind of showed up. When the groom finally comes, half of them, oil has run out. The wicks have burned down. They have no light. They can't join in the procession. The other half, we're so eager for the groom to come. They brought extra oil. They brought extra wicks. They were prepared. No way am I missing out on this feast. No way am I going to miss the groom's coming. And so when he came, those five who were prepared got up and went with him and celebrated. The other five ended up getting locked out. And listen, this, I'm not meaning to get into heaven and hell, and we're not going to do all of that yet. But those that were prepared... It took work. It took thinking ahead of time. It took action. They celebrated with their king. They anticipated his return and they rejoiced with him. And there were others who should have been there, who were invited, but who didn't prepare and who missed out, who missed what God was doing. We, when we use the word wait uh, in English, and English is kind of a terrible language, in case you didn't know, we massacre words all the time, we mix them together, they lose their meaning. The word wait, we tend to think of like sitting around bored. <sighs> When's the groom coming? My lamp is almost, come on, man, what's taking him so long? Like we think of wait in this just sitting there doing nothing, but the word wait in the Greek always has a, an expectation to it. I'm waiting because I can't wait for this to happen. I am so expectant for what the king has promised that it's waiting going, how's he going to do it? What's it even going to be like? I don't know. Like, There's always this expectation to it. So sometimes we hear wait and we think, how do you prepare to sit there and do nothing? But waiting is, I can't wait till he comes back. I need to be ready. Like the bag needs to be already packed because no way am I going to look at Jesus and go, hold on a sec, let me go get some stuff. I have to be ready for when he comes back. This is the kind of waiting preparedness that we find in the scripture. So Christmas, Christmas is this annual reminder that just as God came near then, he's, he's coming again. And it's meant to be this, this time of preparation because again, what we find when we look at the Christmas story leading into Jesus' life is that the people of Israel were found unprepared. Now listen, no one did more religious activity than first century Israel. We as American Christians can't even fathom how much their life was wrapped up in all of these traditions and the law and the sacrifice. Like, it was literally every minute of every day. They were doing something that should have reminded them, we are the people of God. God is in this. God sees us right now. God has called us to this. Let's remember that thing that God had done. But instead, they just became an incredibly religious people without the presence of God. All of the sudden, instead of going to this festival and letting it remind us of what had happened, they went to the festival because the festival is important. 
And sure, there's this story that we tell there, but we only tell that because that's what you do at this point in the festival. They had completely mixed them. Instead of the tradition bringing them back to the story, the story was simply a piece of the tradition. And listen, how can this now apply to us? We read the Christmas story on Christmas Eve, right? Do we do it because we are so grateful and thankful and expectant for what the king is going to do? Or do we do it because that's what you do on a Christmas Eve? It has to be candlelit. We all have this special place in our house. We all have this certain way that we do things. And if we're not careful, the traditions become the point. Our family traditions, our religious traditions, whatever it may be, they become the point. Christmas is, for churches, like this is when business gets done. People show up at church during Christmas season like they don't any other time of year, and then Christmas is over and they don't show up anymore. That religious activity is the point. Well, it's Christmas time, so we got to go to church. Why? Because it's Christmas time, and that's what you do. Not because I just want to see what God is up to. I just need to worship him. I just need to be with We can fall prey to the same thing Israel did. And it can become the story that is meant to encourage, remind, build faith, simply becomes something we do because that's what we do. And listen, it's, it's hard. Like it's, nuanced. it's a nuanced thing because I'm not telling you don't read Luke chapter 2 on Christmas Eve. I think you should. I think it's awesome. But don't do it just because that's what you do. And listen, this takes prayer. This takes God. You change my heart. Help me to remember. Help me, like, let this story excite me. Let this remind me of how much you loved me, that you would come to me. This isn't just a story about a cute baby in a manger. This is a story about a king condescending. I love that word. It means coming below his station to be with me something I could never deserve. This will begin to build faith and hope and courage. Just reading the story, because that's the tradition, completely misses it. Back to John the Baptist. His point. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. They, they were still sons of Israel, but they were disconnected from the Lord their God. They were still involved in every religious activity you could think of, but they were disconnected from the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit of power to Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. May we, this Christmas season, be a prepared people ready for the Lord, looking for his return, looking for how he is near us and what he is doing today May we not miss it as most of Israel did. I think one of the most important tools that we have when it comes to looking back is communion. Would somebody mind going and grabbing the, the uh, children's church kids and bringing them back in for communion? Thanks, Meg. So just like at Christmas, we look back to God coming near the communion table is this regular reminder of why he came near. He came near to put his love on display on the cross, to die on the cross for your sin, the, the death that you deserved. 
he took. And listen, many of us can understand this. We have come and taken communion before simply because that's what you do. Because church put the stuff out there and, oh, it's that time we're singing that song, let's go take communion. And we never even really thought of what it means. We can all be guilty of this. This morning, may we not miss it. Let this tradition that we have remind you of the story. Bring you back to that place. What do I deserve because of my sin? The death, the disconnection. What did he take? What did my king come to earth to pay for me? May we not miss it. May this not just be another tradition, but may this truly be a time of communing with the Lord. Giving thanks. Of May this spur courage and faith in us as we wait to see what he will do next. If he was willing to do that... Man, what does he have in store next for me? Before we come to the communion table, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians not to come in an unworthy manner. And again, if you've been here before, you've heard this many times. That unworthy manner doesn't mean if you've sinned this morning, this week, this month. The unworthy manner is when we hold on to our sin. They call it harboring our sin. Where God has come and he's put his finger on something and says, this is killing you, you need to give this up. And we go, no. I'm going to keep doing it. I don't want you to touch that, God. He says it's an unworthy manner to hold on to our sin and to come and thank Jesus for his death for our sin. And so we always want to take a moment and just allow the Lord to examine our hearts before we come to the communion table. And so we'll have a moment of silence, and it's simply for you to just pray, Lord, is there anything between you and me? Is there any sin that we need to deal with? And if so, deal with it right now in the silence of your own seat. And then come and remember what the king has done for you. So let's take that moment and just be silent before the Lord.